Hi, friends. If you read the episode title, you might be a little bit confused. If you listened to our episode last week, Joanne Little Part 1, we promised you a second part this week, Joanne Little Part 2. And that's actually not what I'm going to give you. But bear with me. Let me explain. I'm going to give you something else. And you will still get Joanne Little Part 2, but we're going to do something a little bit different this week. Um, And here's why. Last week, um, when we were kind of working on getting everything together and finalized for the episode that was supposed to come out, it was just, it was a wild week. There was a lot going on, you know, just like different personal things. Some of you might know that I also have a wedding photography business. That is my full-time job right now. And where we are right now, we have the holiday coming up this weekend right before this episode airs. And so all of that sort of culminated in me not really wanting to rush the second part. I want for you to really be able to get the full quality of the second part of Joanne Little's story. It's such a powerful story and it deserves that. So I'm going to have you wait just one more week for that. But also last week, I found myself in a courtroom like the ones that I'm so often talking about on this show. And this time I was in the role of crime victim, not storyteller. And if you listen to the trailer or the teaser for True Crime, then you've heard, or even if you just follow me on social media, then you might have known that I was the victim of a financial crime last year. And I want to tell you that story today because it's one that, you know, sort of came to its natural end last week. And it's really been at the forefront of my mind. And I want to walk you through it. All of the pieces from me being on the phone in tears with the FBI to sort of like the painful healing process and all the things that kind of led up to that. So I'm Celicia Stanton and you're listening to True Crime. in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And last summer, as I'm sure all of you know, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, actually not too far away from where I live. And I know that, you know, George Floyd's murder was, it just spurred so much action around racial injustice. It was, you know, one event that has happened, honestly, so many times to so many individuals throughout the hundreds years long history of this country. But, you know, this specific time, it really spurred a lot of action. And, you know, for me, what that looked like was I kind of used it as an opportunity to be more vocal about about things that, you know, I was vocal about in my in my inner circle with my friends and with my family, but often kind of felt like I shouldn't be as loud or as vocal about online. Like I was saying earlier, you know, I have a photography business and one of the big pieces of business advice I remember learning over and over again was don't mix business and politics. And, you know, as a black woman, it's so interesting to hear that because it's like so many things about my life, about my family's lives. They're not like political. They're literally just like day to day things, but they're coded as political. So a lot of that advice to not mix business and politics for me is always an advice to like, don't be your full authentic self when it comes to making money. And at the end of the day, that was advice that 
I sort of followed. I mean, I wouldn't say that like I was like hiding and not being honest about my views about racial justice, but I certainly wasn't as vocal about it as I am now on social media. So, you know, after George Floyd was murdered and a lot of folks started having these conversations and it was in my own community and I was kind of seeing the ways in which my own community was reacting to such a traumatic event. It sort of allowed me the opportunity to talk more openly or maybe I just like was like, you know, I don't care whatever the consequences are, what the consequences are. And so I started, you know, using Instagram as a platform for talking about these things more publicly with people. So I, I started posting on my Instagram just different thoughts, and ideas, things that bothered me about like that I would notice that white folks would do that honestly I felt like were kind of racist, but maybe it was unintentional. I posted about learnings that I had about history. I posted about my experience as a Black person who's also a Latina person. Lots of different things. And I really felt like at this point, I was like really coming into my own. I'm somebody who, you know, not just occupies some of these identities that are historically oppressed, but also somebody who just is naturally really inquisitive. I did high school debate. I coach high school debate. I've coached high school debate for a number of years. I love research and reading and thinking critically. And I felt like I was that person in so many aspects of my life. And then just like when it came to this sort of public persona that I had online, that didn't match up because I didn't think I could match up that way. And so now when I started talking more publicly about these things, it was like this this connection, right, between who I really am and who I am to the people that know me in real life and like this more public facing version of who I am. And so in the summer, I really was feeling like I'm hitting my stride. I'm really finding what I'm supposed to be doing and, you know, getting some attention online with my social media. That was helpful for my photography business, which I had been building for a number of years at this point. You know, more folks who looked like me were coming to me, more folks who felt excluded from the very rigid traditional wedding system were were coming to me and working with me. And so it was like a really, really hard time, I think, for, for just anybody who is a Black person in this country. It was, and just for anyone, considering it was 2020 and a pandemic, it was also just like, for me, additionally, a really powerful time of feeling in line with who I am and feeling like I was on the right path and doing the right things in my career that aligned with my personal life. And so I was kind of at this point where I was like, you know, I'm really ready to start planning for the future. I want to, you know, I live in an apartment. I want to have a house one day. I want to be able to save for different things. I want to retire. I mean, isn't it kind of wild that, you know, if you live in the United States, this is a country where you literally have to put your money in some sort of magical account like you might not understand. And then that somehow is going to grow money. And then, you know, hopefully if you grow enough money, you're going to be able to like stop working when you're 70 years old. It's just, it's a very wild system to me. It's very confusing, but I wanted, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be someone who could eventually stop working. And I, you know, like a lot of black folks, like a lot of people, I just didn't come from a family where all of these options were open to me financially, where there was just tons of generational knowledge about about what you do with your finances, about how to invest and all of these different things. I mean, my mom was the first in her family to attend college. And and so for me, I mean, that was like a benefit that I had someone in my family who had been through that process, but I really wasn't super far removed from a very different experience. And also, you know, even though my mom is incredible and done some amazing things despite 
where she came from, which is, you know, coming from poverty and coming from a family that came here from a different country. That's a lot of change in one generation. So there's still a lot of things for me that I feel like, you know, I'm learning as I as I go. And one of those things was money. You know, money is scary because it's one of those things where it's like you make a wrong move and that can cost you really, really big. And it's and like I was saying before, it's super complex. So I was like, I don't trust myself. I do not trust myself to be able to put this into the right accounts and to be the most strategic. And so I really would love to work with a financial advisor or I don't know, somebody who knows what they're talking about. And after a little bit of research, it became clear to me that financial advisors are for rich people. Like many financial advisors will not work with you unless you have quite a lot more money than I have. So I was starting to feel like, okay, I don't know if working with financial advisors is super realistic. I also don't have tons of time. So I don't really know when and how I'm going to learn all of this stuff. So when my mom came to me and she was like, I have somebody perfect for you that aligns with your values, that you're going to love, and they're a financial advisor. I was like, that's awesome. Like, I want to know more. So my mom had seen this person give a talk. And actually, this talk was specifically, you know, talking about how Black Americans have had a lot of trouble accessing financial information and how he, as a Black person, you know, really understood that intimately. His mission in life was really to help folks like that, to create access for people who traditionally have been denied access over hundreds of years. And I loved that that was like the talk that he was giving that my mom even, that's how my mom found out about him. I love that. Like, I was like, that's perfect. That already is showing some sort of value alignment. Like he's getting where I'm coming from. And I haven't even looked up his website. I don't need know anything about him at this point. But, you know, she also said he was just a super charismatic person. He was there with his kids and he was so good with them. And she just gave me his contact information and encouraged that I reach out to him. So I looked him up. I saw he had some good reviews from folks who had very like normal, ordinary jobs, like people who were teachers and helpers and had families and just like normal people, not like uber rich people. And that made me feel comfortable. I was like, okay, great. He has experience with working with people like me. So I sent him an email and I was super pumped to hear back from him. And, you know, he was like, let's get on a Zoom and let's connect. And I can tell you about my process and what I do. And so we get on our Zoom meeting And he is just super nice right away. Very, 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 very kind person, really approachable, asking me personal questions about my life, telling me about his life. And, you know, he just kind of talked about what he does, which is help folks who are just like me, who are confused about a lot of financial things, but have big goals and want to be able to do the right things and want to be able to secure a future, not just for themselves, but, you know, for their family, for their kids, things like that. So, What he offered, which was really exciting to me, was not just the opportunity to have him invest my funds in in different accounts that, you know, would do that magical money growing thing. But also he said that a part of his process and his program was teaching me about these things would be to like do biweekly calls where we would go through all of these different topics. I could ask any questions I had. He would go through his curriculum from things that are very like broad and like vision boarding to very specific things like planning wills and insurance. And I was like, this is amazing. It's basically like I'm paying him for a course on these things and he's going to invest my money. So perfect. And then additionally, like the cost to work with him was super reasonable. So I was like, sign me up. 
I'm pumped. So I paid him his flat fee. And then from there, you know, we started working together. And I remember in our very first conversation, you know, I said, I had the, I have this money I would like to invest. And I want to put it somewhere, maybe not super long-term, but I, I want to start saving for something. I don't know, retirement, maybe to buy a house. I don't know. I want to put it somewhere where it's not just sitting in my bank account. And he was like, that's amazing. I would love to help you with that. So then he told me, there is an Apple stock split that's going to happen soon, okay? And it would be great if you could invest your money before the Apple stock split. And if you're like, I don't know what an Apple stock split is. Like, I didn't know what an Apple stock split was. Like, I, like I just told you, I did not understand nitty gritty of finances, okay? But it sounded good. Apple's cool. I have Apple everything. And so I was just like, all right, he says I need to get my money in before the Apple stock split. So I should probably do that. And he was like, if you can get this money to me before then, your money is going to get this bump because of the stock split. And, and that'll be awesome. So I was actually going on a, a camping trip. So I tried to send him the money. I was like, OK, yeah, let's do it. He said I should wire him the money. And I actually remember I sent him an email because I was like, how do I send this much money? I had never sent anyone this amount of money before. And so he was like, you know, the easiest way is to wire it because that goes through the Fed. And, you know, so it's secure. And, you know, when he said wiring money, the only, again, the only familiarity I had with that was from like those scams that you hear about, like people like wiring money and then you like never hear from them again. So that's kind of, a little bit weird to me as well, but I had vetted this guy. Like, it wasn't just a situation where I went in and I was like, all right, whatever he tells me, I'm going to believe. I'm also, like I said, I'm a critical thinker. I'm going to like look things up. I'm going to try to understand it myself before I make decisions. So, not only was this somebody who was recommended by my mom, but this was someone who is really well respected in the community. We had a lot of mutual connections. You know, he was really well known. And Additionally, he was like an actual financial advisor. So, you know, if I looked him up through the Minnesota Department of Commerce, he would pop up. And this is my favorite part. He was a fiduciary, which if you don't know what a fiduciary is, essentially it's a special designation that you can get as a financial advisor. Not all financial advisors are fiduciaries, but some are. And this designation basically says that you are always going to put the interests of your client ahead of your own personal interests for financial gain. And so, you know, in order to become a fiduciary, he had told me, you know, he had to take different classes and basically commit to this because it is it does come with extra legal and, you know, moral, but extra legal obligations. Right. You can be penalized if you violate that agreement to do what's best for the client um, at all times. So I tried to wire the money. But the thing was, is my bank was like, you don't wire money like I've never seen you wire money before. And so I reached out to him and I was like, hey, like I tried to send you this money, but it got returned to me on suspicion of fraud. And he responded and he was like, you know, I've had that happen with a lot of different clients of mine before. And it's really great that these banks, they have these extra layers of protection because there's a lot of fraud schemes that are going around that are, you know, stealing money from folks. And it's, it's really it's a really awful situation. So I know it's frustrating that they returned your money, but ultimately like it's to protect you. And I'm glad that your bank's got your back essentially. And so 
because I was going on a camping trip, I had to wait and I had to send him the money after the Apple stock split. And so I never, I was like, really at this point, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm behind. Like this was my big opportunity to maybe make some extra money and now I'm not going to. But I was already kind of feeling like, oh, I wasn't able to do it in time. So I was pretty urgently on top of it once I came back from the camping trip and I sent him the money right away. And so then after that, we started meeting and we started meeting biweekly to do this, you know, Friday financial learning that was promised to me. So like I said, the first thing he started off with was homework, make a vision board, and we're going to go through it on the call. So I put together this PowerPoint presentation with all of these different pictures of goals that I had and things I wanted to achieve. And, you know, I also looped in my partner because he was like, you know, I won't even charge you extra if you loop in your partner on this and, you know, you both could, could, I can teach both of you together. So You know, we go to the meeting together and we show him the vision board and he starts giving, you know, feedback. He's like, these are amazing goals. And he was like giving motivational feedback of like changing like the tenses that I had written things in instead of like, oh, this is something that I hope to have one day, something I will have one day. Right. He was talking about how the way you phrase things can really change whether or not these come into fruition. And you know, you might not be like a hippie woo woo person or like somebody who's into all of that. But for me, I was kind of like, oh, that's cool. Like he has this very like logical mind on one hand that understands finances and stocks and stuff. And then on the other hand, he really gets this sort of more like broad goal oriented stuff, too. And I really liked that balance. And we had a few meetings like that. Oh, and I should mention, I guess one of the things after I had signed the contract and sent him the money and everything like that, he had set me up with this system where I would be able to see like where my money was invested, the growth that it was having and all of that. And then that way, as he's helping me with sort of like my bigger goals of retirement and buying a house and all of that, he could help me with some of these more small goals that I have and being able to see, okay, what what's going on in these different accounts and helping me set create budgets and things like that. So I could connect all of my different bank accounts to them. And so he was like, hey, I was looking for your right capital. And I noticed, you know, based on our conversation that you had some extra funds that you might be able to invest into this account that we we had invested your original money in. And, you know, I think you should think about investing more money. And I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Like, he's so on top of things. Now he's asking me to invest more. And that way I'm not missing out because it's like every month, every day your money is in there. It's helping it accrue interest. So I was like, this is something I might have put off for literally years. And now he's going to help me remind me, Okay, I should invest more because I have some excess money right now. So I was like, "Okay, that sounds good. Like as exciting as that was, I was also a little bit worried because it was fall of 2020. And again, it's 2020. So it's like a very tumultuous time, especially in the the wedding industry, the events industry. Events weren't really happening. And it's a weddings are a very seasonal business. So half the year is like weddings galore. April through November, October. And then the other half of the year, it's a cold tundra. So no one wants to have a wedding. And so your income really fluctuates depending on the part of the year that you're in. And so for me, with this being kind of the middle of fall, I was like, you know, I'm about to go into winter and I don't want to be in a situation where I've put everything excess I have into some account that I can't easily access. So I kind of expressed all of these concerns to him. And, you know, what he said was totally get that. He was super empathetic, super understanding. And he was like, 
at the end of the day, like he kind of broke down, how about you keep this amount of money and you put in this amount of money and then that way you have X amount to float you if, you know, worst case scenario happens and whatever. So he was really understanding. He really heard me. And the other thing, too, is like him being a black person. I was really open with him when I first started working with him about you know, everything I was telling you all before about in much more detail about my family and about, you know, our own financial history and struggles that we've had in the past and kind of just explain like I really wanted to set myself up to learn these things that maybe not everyone in my family had an opportunity to. And so he was I was very vulnerable and he he really returned that and he was really like, this is my mission. So when he was really listening to what I had to say about my fear about investing more money, it made me feel really validated. It made me feel like, okay, he really gets it. And, you know, so I was like, great. What you're saying makes sense. I'll send the money. But then I didn't because, you know, like life happens and you get busy. So he followed up via text. He texted me. He was like, hey, Salisa, did you think about, you know, what we chatted about? Like, I want to make sure that you're able to to get this stuff invested. And I want to just follow up with you. And now I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, I dropped the ball. Like I need to just get on this. Right. And so I think he had to do that like one or two more times, kind of follow up with me, check in. And I was kind of feeling like, wow, what a nice guy, um, really making sure that I'm getting this done and I'm just like not being as focused as I need to be. So finally, I was like, okay, I just, I need to do it. And he he, he was like, would it be easier if I called you and just got your account information and, and we just did it on the phone? And I was like, yes, like call me right now. And so he gave me a call. We did that. And then, you know, he sent me a text and he was like, you know, Silesia, I just think that you should be really proud of what you're doing. Like at the age that you are investing this money, like investing in you and your future, like that's a really scary thing to do. And you should feel really good about about where you're at. And so I was feeling I was like, wow, you know, getting praise from the financial advisor. Like this is awesome. And so at this point, you know, it was just smooth sailing, more more of the same. And then at some point, he ends up telling me that he is going to maybe have to change the schedule for how we've been meeting. And I was fine with that. Like he had been so he had been so attentive that I was like, you know what, however it needs to be done is is cool. Like I, I feel good about it. I feel confident, like definitely feel like I trust you. We've we've gotten to talk face to face so much. And the reason that he gave for this was that he actually was working on another business. He was working on an app. And this app had the same mission that he had as an individual financial advisor, which was this was going to help folks who are traditionally excluded from financial information. So like, you know, black folks, indigenous folks, lower income folks, and it was going to help them learn financial stuff, all this really confusing stuff on an app. And that's why he wanted to sort of change our schedule. And he said, you know, we'll probably have to move some of our stuff to do like instead of like meeting face to face, I'll send you like a video recording of what we were going to go over, that kind of thing. So like I said, I was cool with it. And so we were going into Thanksgiving at that point. It was the week before, I believe, that we had that conversation. And so I wasn't super on his back of like, okay, well, what is exactly going to look like at that point? Because I had a lot going on. And I assumed he did as well. So we had Thanksgiving and then like another week passes and then I didn't hear anything. And then like the next week I was like, oh, I haven't heard from this dude, let me follow up with him. So I emailed him and I was just like, hey, just wanted to check in. No, you're really busy, but wanted to see like, how are we going to move forward? And then a couple days pass and I don't hear anything. And then I still don't know like where this came from. But a couple days later, I'm sitting at my computer and out of nowhere, this thought pops into my head of like, what if this guy took my money? Like, what if that happened? And 
there was nothing that made me feel like that would be likely. Nothing at all. So I don't understand why I was thinking like this. But once it was planted in my head, I'm like one of those people, it's like an obsessive thought. Like I could not stop thinking about, well, what if that was the case? And then I was realizing like, okay, I have this system I can log into to see where my money is. But like, I don't really know like exactly where it is or how I could pull it out. Like he had told me like it wasn't being put in like a traditional retirement account or anything. It was going to be put in a more short-term account where if an emergency came out, I'd be able to pull out the funds. So I knew I could reach out to him to pull out the funds, but I was like, what if I just wanted to pull them out on my own? Like I actually was thinking, I don't know how to do that. And so that made me feel like a little bit weird. And I was like, yeah, that's weird. Like he hasn't responded to me in a couple of days. So I was like, okay, I'm being kind of ridiculous, but I was just telling my anxiety at that point, like just, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, No. So I sent him another message following up. Hey, like just wanted to check in. I don't hear anything. And it's not like it's like days or weeks go by and my fear and anxiety slowly build. It's like the next day, it's all I can think about. And I start talking to people in my life about like, hey, I'm feeling like kind of anxious. Like this dude, like he's not responding to me. And, uh, you know, what if like, I know this sounds like really wild, but like, what if this guy took my money and all of that? And Everyone I talked to, you know, my partner who had been on the meetings with me with this guy, so we had met him multiple times, my friends, they were all like, there's literally no way that that is the case. Like, he's a very legitimate person. You know, he has a very, very clear online presence. He's known by a lot of people. He's a real financial advisor. His credentials are valid. Like, no, it's just he's probably just super busy. So I was like, okay. So I text him. Nothing. I don't hear anything again. With my text, I'm like, you know, I'm I'm feeling a little bit concerned that I don't know how to get my money out. And that's kind of I I escalated the way that I was talking about it to him and kind of explained it to, to him that way. Don't hear anything. So then at this point, I start going into full on social media stalker mode. And I'm like looking at his Twitter, looking at his Instagram, looking at his Facebook, looking at his family's social media accounts, like any signs of life. Like, does this person, is this person alive? Are they okay? What is going on? And I find his Twitter and I find a tweet, just one tweet from recently. And the tweet says like something to the effect of at the lowest point in his life, he figured out how he was going to change the world. And I'm not saying it to you that way because I'm telling you about him. That that is how it was worded. He was talking about himself in the third person. And I was like, oh, that's weird. It was posted at like one or two in the morning. I was like, I don't know why it's the lowest point in his life. I'm thinking at this point, like, wow, okay. So clearly he's going through something mental health related and that's probably why he's gone completely AWOL. But I was like, that is super strange. And just a weird thing to say. And so then I, you know, again, I I can't stop talking about it with everybody. I I know everyone who's close to me. And I remember, like, people saying to me, I'm pretty sure, like, my partner for sure said this to me, if not other folks too, but they were like, this man does not want to go to prison. Like, we know he has a family. He has a wife. He has multi, has four children. Like, there is no way that he wants to get caught for stealing tens of thousands of dollars from somebody and you have a very clear paper trail like he would go to prison so no he didn't steal money from you that would make no sense at all like that would be the worst case scenario and there's got to clearly be a million other scenarios that come ahead of that and so I literally I was it hit a point where I like couldn't even sleep like I was just so stressed about it 
because I just kept thinking about like, what if this money was gone? Like if this money was gone, what would I do? That is so beyond, it's more money than I've ever had in my life. And it's my whole future. Like I do not know what I would do if it was gone. And so that's where my mind kept going. And so then there was one night and this is, again, not happening over a period of weeks. It's over a weekend. And so I think it was like a, a, right after the weekend on Monday or so, I couldn't sleep. I stayed up literally all night just Googling all around. And I, through all of my Googling, I ended up like convincing myself that I was like, no, like, I think he stole my money. There's just too many things about what he's done and our interactions that now feel weird to me. Like, I just think this is what's happened. And so when that morning, when like the rest of the world woke up, I had made the decision to start calling places like, I don't know, the Minnesota Department of Commerce and stuff and see what I could figure out. And right before I'm going to do that, I get a text message from the financial advisor. It's the first time he's responded to me since, you know, our last conversation. And he says something to the effect of, I regret to inform you that I have turned myself into the FBI and please send any questions you have to my email address. My lawyers have advised me to not speak on this anymore at this time. (laughs) And that's like one of those text messages where it's like, you read that and you're like, it takes you a minute to fully comprehend it because it's like, even though I had suspected that something was wrong, it's like, okay, now this is the confirmation from the person. And what he was saying to me made no sense. Like email him. If I have any questions, I'm like, why would I email you if I have any questions? Like at this point, if you've turned yourself into the FBI, you have done something really awful because I had asked him multiple times at this point, for access to my money. And that was not provided in his answer. So I'm feeling like at this point, the money is is gone, right? Like you, the, this is the reason you've turned yourself into the FBI. So I call the Minnesota Department of Commerce. And, you know, it's never a good sign when you like explain in 15 seconds, sort of like a very, very abbreviated version of your situation. And the person on the other end of the line is like, oh, are you talking about XYZ person? And she asked me about like this exact person I'm working with. And I was like, okay, so clearly this is not the first person she's talked to today or recently about this man. The only reason I'm not sharing his name is, you know, he has a family. And, you know, if you really want to find him, I'm sure you can find stuff from the media online, but I'm just personally not going to share it on this episode. So she says, you know, are you talking about this person? And I was like, yes, that is who I'm talking about. And she's like, okay, great. I'm going to transfer you to somebody who works in our fraud division and they're going to talk to you more. And I didn't know it at the time, but this person was actually like an FBI agent. And I call them, leave a message, they didn't pick up. And at that point, once I got like, I had just been in a mode at that point of like, do, do, do. I like started searching up fraud lawyers and calling them. And I started calling the federal government agencies that might be able to assist with this thing, calling my bank that I had sent the money from, like everybody, like through all of these calls, I was essentially discovering like, if this man did steal your money, there's almost nothing that can be done. It is unlikely you will ever see this money again. And once I was done with all those calls, once there was nobody else to call, that's when it finally hit me of like the full gravity of this situation that I was in. Because when you're in this moment of like, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to problem solve. Like, and you cannot, you can no longer think of any other way to problem solve your issue. For me, that's like the worst moment. And so, you know, I was just kind of hitting me like, oh my God, like this worst fear really 
just came true. I don't even know why. Like why? I have no real understanding of what he did with the money, why he would do this. Did he do this to other people? None of that. So I end up getting a call back not very long later from the FBI agent. And, you know, this FBI agent um, was really nice. It's like one of those things where it was hard for me because as somebody who is really committed to racial justice and knows about how policing and about how the FBI in particular, the history that, you know, these systems have in this country of like destroying black communities, of infiltrating civil rights groups, it's just it's really upsetting. And so to now have to be like talking to this FBI agent, it was like kind of sad. I mean, and again, it's it's literally nothing against this individual person. And this individual person I talked to was very kind um, and very understanding. But it was just like, now I'm being forced to interact with this system. I really have no interest in interacting with. And, you know, who does? Who wants to be on a call with an FBI agent talking about how they don't know where tens of thousands of dollars are, their whole life savings is? And so, you know, I explained to her, she basically was like, look, like, we're doing an investigation on this person. And it's looking like it's possible that this person is doing this to a lot of people. And, um, you you know, can you just tell me everything about what happened? She asked me to tell her everything about, like, what happened in my situation. And so I basically ran her through everything that I ran you all through in more detail. And, like, I literally, I'm like, at one point towards the end of the call, she's like, and, you know, this might be hard to answer, but... You know, I have to ask if it's true that this money was stolen and you can't get it back. What does that like mean for you? Like, what does that mean for your life? And like, this was the point where I'm just like, like, you know, I had just been reciting all these facts of this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And now I'm like being forced to think about like, what is the real impact of this? Like, how is this going to irreparably change like my plans for the future, who I am? And so now I'm like crying on the phone with the FBI agent. I'm like, how is this the what I'm doing right now at 11 in the morning, <laughs> like on a Tuesday? I just don't understand how this is how I've, the position I found myself in. It's just it's it was surreal. So I don't know. I think I can't even really remember. I sort of blacked it out. I talked about like being a small business owner and it being a pandemic and just how awful it felt. And I got off that call and there was nothing they could do like it was just like okay and now wait <laughs> and, and you'll see what happens i was given no clear information it wasn't like they were like this is what happened to your money or or this is um like specifically what the investigation has uncovered because she told me you know i can't tell you anything about the investigation i can't I'm, i really can tell you very very little and that was just her following the rules she had to follow but you know really made me reflect more broadly on like okay and i've talked about this on episodes like i get it on some level it's like You don't want to tip off the wrong person. But on the other level, it's like I'm a victim and I would really I didn't steal my own money. Like I would really like to know what's going on because I feel very confused and upset. And this is a traumatizing situation and the lack of information is making it more traumatizing. And so for me, this was sort of the first sign of like this system, this criminal legal system is just not meant for victims. It's not meant for victims to feel fulfilled and whole or anything like that. And so I basically at that point, there was nothing I could do except literally wait and like, I don't know, do a lot more social media stalking and try to put together a story for myself. Literally, I had no other information until finally, like about a month later, maybe I end up getting more information that, 
the U.S. government is going to pursue charges against my financial advisor. And that just means he's going to be in federal court rather than state court because he had committed a a federal crime. And so no idea if there are other victims, no idea about if I would ever see any of this money again, just knowing that like, okay, some vague charges. Don't even know what the charges are. Just know that they're going to pursue some kind of charge against him. And that was really difficult. And so I spent a lot of time just listening to podcasts and just doing puzzles, like lots of puzzles of cats, like every kind of cat puzzle that you could get your hands on. I wanted my hands on and I wanted to do that puzzle. And in all of that time, I listened to many, many episodes of true crime podcasts. And, you know, a lot of people are interested in true crime. A lot of women especially are interested in true crime. And, you know, I'm no exception. But then at the same time, I would listen to these true crime podcasts and I'd be like, There's a lot missing here. And I was feeling like that based off of my own politics, my own beliefs about the world, not even just my experience as now a crime victim, but also just as an individual. I was like, these stories are not focused on people who are typically victims of crimes. These stories are not told in a way which actually dissects the way that race plays into these things, how sexuality plays into these things, how systems create these situations, how nobody just commits a crime just because they feel like it, but because often because of either like conditioning or a broken system and none of that was getting talked about. And also just now from that perspective of now being a crime victim and being really frustrated the process and feeling like the government was doing so little to help me in my in my healing and in, in the information I wanted to know and feeling like it was just really frustrating to to hear so much true crime where these folks were just glorified like, oh, you know, and then they catch the bad guy and they save the day and it's amazing. I'm like, that's literally not how it is. And at the same time, I was experiencing the biggest test to my political views that I had experienced yet in my life. Because, you know, before this had happened to me, I was someone who believed in, you know, abolition, police and prison abolition, who, you know, believed that the ways that our criminal justice system are set up are completely messed up, they, that, that it needs to be ripped up from the ground up and something entirely new needs to be put in its place. And so in some ways, my experience as a crime victim was validating that. And in some ways, it wasn't because people and there were people in my life who, like, you know, really wanted this person who had done this to me to pay, right? They wanted him to go to prison. They wanted him to suffer. They they wanted retribution. And and as the victim, I was understanding what it what it's like to be in that position and be like, what options do I have but this one option? I have like if I want to see any of my money again, I have to co- cooperate with this system. If I want to have any sort of if I want him to be at all you know, held accountable. The only option I have is for whatever the courts want to do with him. And so that's that's a challenge to my belief system because now I'm like, it's it's really easy for abolitionists to say, oh, you know, we'll figure it out one day. Like, how are you going to deal with, how are you going to deal with people who commit crimes? Oh, you know, we'll see in the future. Or, you know, crime would go down if we just solve the root causes of crime. Like those answers aren't nearly as validating when you're sitting there as a crime victim because you're like, okay, but like the crime has happened to me and I want something to happen as a result of that. So I had to think a lot about the things I believed and how I could reconcile those things with my new experience as a victim of a crime. And that is sort of all of those things is how truer crime came about and how is sort of the insight that I bring into those episodes and and into writing the episodes. But 
as I'm working on that, I'm like, okay, well, I'm I'm taking this really awful thing that happened to me and I'm creating something positive out of it. And I mean, you know, the stories that we write for the show are really sad. They're tragic. They're awful. But I really hope that like telling them can help us take action, can help us know about the ways in which our system is broken, can compel people to do something different. So ultimately, I was like, okay, bad thing happened, but I'm taking it. I'm running with it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as I'm like on this path where I'm like, I'm getting better, I'm feeling better. It's like he's been charged with this crime. This financial advisor has been charged with this crime by the U.S. government and he's pled guilty. And now it's in the news because like now it's news, like now it's it's out there and, you know, writers can write about it. And it wasn't like it was this huge news story, but it was it was going around and it was weird to see people tweeting about it or posting about it on their Instagram stories. And there was one person who tweeted like in response to one of the articles and was like, anybody who would invest their money with a 31 year old, you know, is an idiot, basically. And like they deserved what they had it coming. And it's just like, to me, it's it's so wild. Like I'm like, even with a white collar financial crime, it's like the level of blaming the person who is harmed for the harm that has happened to them and just like always thinking that you would have done better if only you had been in this situation and if no these things happen to anybody nobody is immune from having harm happen to them and this is the point where i actually was able to find out there are other victims and there are other folks that this person did this to and in fact this is all that he was doing. Like, he was not doing any legitimate financial advising. He was stealing from all of his clients. And so the FBI put out a press release, and the press release detailed, for the first time, I got some answers to my questions, and it wasn't like anybody contacted me and said, hey, here are the answers to your questions. It was like, oh, read this article, and that's how you're going to find out these answers to this stuff that's, like, deeply personal to you. And it turned out that, you know, he had stolen quite literally millions of dollars from like 25-ish clients and different amounts from all these different people. And he didn't use it for anything necessary. He used it to live a super lavish lifestyle. He built a million-dollar home, a more than million-dollar home, his second home. He had another home. He bought expensive cars. He took his you know, family on cruises. He bought his wife fancy jewelry. Like He literally was just living a life that was way above his means. And that's what he chose to do with that money. And so for me, again, this is a challenge because I'm like, what? The vast majority of crimes that happen are crimes of desperation, are crimes that are the result of, you know, systemic issues. And like, not to say this wasn't, I don't, I still don't know all the details of why this man chose to do what he did. But this is like a bizarre situation. Like, this is not the norm that a Black middle-class man goes and steals money from not rich people, you know, average everyday people through a financial planning scheme and then uses it not to see a family member in prison or something like that or buy pizza from this corner store, but to go and buy million dollar mansions. Like it's just, again, very surreal. And so that was hard because it's like, Again, I can't talk to this person. I have no ability to get any real explanation other than what I'm reading on this paper. It just makes you more angry. No one is walking me through this. I'm just processing this on my own. And again, it made me just really frustrated with the system. And I also was starting to feel like, you know, people don't really get white collar crimes. They don't really get financial crimes. These are not crimes that people think of as really impacting people. You know, like they're called nonviolent. But I don't really know what's nonviolent about 
betraying people's trust so deeply, especially in a capitalist country where money is everything. Like we're talking about anything you need, you need money to be able to do. It is life and death in in most places around the globe and especially here in this country. It's life and death. Okay. We don't even have healthcare without paying for it. So this idea that this was a nonviolent crime, I mean, no, it was very violent and the emotional harm is very violent. So I started doing like research, like right after this happened to me, actually, I did all this research on like, what happens to white collar crime victims? And I learned about, you know, the victims of Bernie Madoff. If you don't know who that is, this is a, I mean, it was absolutely wild situation, but also just like this person was like a a wealthy white man. So just a lot more typical for this type of crime. And he stole tons of money. I mean, millions and millions and millions and millions. Maybe it was over a billion. I don't remember. Tons of money from his investor clients. And he actually recently died, but he was sent to, to he was sentenced to prison. And there was a study which was comparing victims of Bernie Madoff's scheme to victims of violent crimes, including like sexual assault and murder, things like that. And what they found was that these victims of this financial crime they were dealing with all of the same impacts as folks who were dealing with the impacts of violent crime. You know, their PTSD levels were the same. Their levels of depression were the same. Their suicidal ideation was the same. Like the emotional harms that they were living with as a result of what had happened to them were significant and lasting. And I think that's the thing about white collar crime too and financial crime specifically, which is really important is like if a discrete traumatic event happens to you, like if, if a crime happens to you, like you were attacked when you're 20 years old. It happens at that moment in time. And of course, you're living with the trauma of that forever. But it happens at this discrete moment in time. When you have somebody steal like your entire retirement, let's say, you're living with the consequences of that very physically every day because you literally can't afford to pay for the things that you need to afford to pay for or you cannot pay your medical bills or you cannot retire at all. So it's something that that is really hard to explain to people because Money feels insignificant, but it's so significant. And so for me, when he was charged, it was in the news. That's when I found out that he was he was charged with one count of mail fraud. And I was like, one count of mail fraud. Wait, man steals millions of dollars from over 20 people and he gets one charge and not to say, oh, load him up with all the charges, send him to prison forever. Not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if I went and I robbed 20 banks, I'm going to get charged for robbing each of those banks, okay? Like, I'm not going to get one just like, oh, we're just going to group it all together because it was just one robbery scheme. And that's basically how, you know, he was treated for his financial crimes. And to me, I was like, this is the disparity between how we treat, you know, financial crimes, white collar crimes, and how we treat these violent crimes. And that's because who do we consider to be the people who are committing white collar crimes or financial crimes. Obviously, people with access to to do those sorts of crimes is, you know, a lot of white folks, a lot of wealthy folks. And the laws are shaped in that way, too. So that those a lot of times people who are committing those crimes, like let's say you're embezzling, you may never get caught for it at all. Point is, he gets charged with the one charge and he pleads guilty to it. And, you know, he's claiming that he is really sorry and he wants to make amends. He wants to make it up to the the people he harmed. And that's why he's going to cooperate and plead guilty. And again, I have no idea if that's genuine. I don't know if it was. I mean, I kind of doubt it, but I had no idea if that was genuine because there was no restoration process. There was no option for a restoration process. It was like, 
You can come to these virtual hearings if you want. Your presence is not required. These are like the automatic emails I would get from the government. Your presence is not required. Show up if you want to. We're taking it from here. That's basically how it is. And, you know, that's how I felt throughout the whole process. I just felt like I'm not a part of this. This is not about me. This is not about any of the victims. This is about serving justice for the government. And justice for the government is punishing him. And I didn't care about punishing him as much as I cared about getting my money back. And when it came to that, I was basically told, like, we'll try to do whatever we can, but like no promises and kind of unlikely. And in fact, for most people who are the victims of financial crimes, especially, you know, like investment crimes like this, you don't see barely any of that money ever again because it's not like the government pays it back to you. It's like that person has to pay it back to you through restitution, which means that you know, they're going to be required to pay you money until they pay it off. But if that person doesn't have money, then they really can't or they're going to have to do it so, so slowly that it's like you're never going to see it. And that's the thing, too. The ironic thing is like we put all of the victims, we all put our money into these accounts trying to grow it. And now we're losing all of this valuable time where this money should be accumulating interest. And it's not because, I mean, this is how the system works and it's not prioritized on helping to make sure that we get what we need. It's prioritized on on hurting this person. So all of that happens. And again, I try to move on with my life. And then I find out he's going to be sentenced months later because they decided that they want to sentence him when COVID's over because there might be a, a prison sentence. I don't remember if they said this part, but this is what I assumed was like, they want it to be in person in case this person needs to be taken into custody immediately or just the severity of it. It should be in person. So. It was scheduled and it happened last week and I didn't know what to expect going into it. But when I went for the very first time, I got to see other victims like in the flesh. And what stuck out to me was, you know, all of the victims that were there. I don't know about every person because some people were there virtually, but everyone that was physically there was either a black person, another person of color or A woman. There weren't any white men that were victimized. And it was overwhelmingly, I mean, like disproportionately black. And it made sense. This is how he got us to invest money with him is he had positioned himself as somebody who's going to help folks who didn't have access. And as a part of the sentencing process, you know, you get to give a victim impact statement if you want. And victim impact statements came as a result of the victim's rights movement. Believe it or not, for as little as I got throughout this process of justice, it was worse. There were times when it was worse. And, and, you know, victims had to really fight to be heard, to be cared about in the system. And and they're still not. And, you know, one of the things that came out of that victims' rights movement was this idea of a victim impact statement. That victims could give statements about how the crime that occurred impacted them and what they would like to see happen as a result of that. So basically, you sort of try to influence the judge on the sentence or the punishment. But the thing is, is in my research about victim impact statements, what I learned unsurprisingly is that if you're a Black person giving a victim impact statement, the jury on balance finds you less believable. They find a victim impact statement from a white person to be more heart-wrenching, to be more emotional, to be more decision-swaying. And they also found that victim impact statements given against Black defendants were more likely to result in a harsher sentence than they were when they're given against white defendants. And so 
all of this to say that like this victim's rights movement (laughs) created different policies that operate exactly as they're supposed to in our justice system, which is to criminalize the folks that it disproportionately criminalizes, Black folks, Indigenous folks, low-income folks. And so... That was difficult for me because it's like the victim impact statement would have been my one opportunity to have my voice heard for the first time for this justice system for me to feel validated and listened to and heard. And also, I don't want to participate in a system that is that unjust. I decided I would rather focus and funnel all of that writing and just mental energy into writing episodes for this show. But I was really taken by, you know, the victim impact statements that were given by other victims and people who lost a lot more than I did. I'm in my 20s. You know, I have decades ahead of me to rebuild that money, to hopefully, you know, make more than that, to invest in my future. And, you know, he stole from people who don't have that time. You know, there was there was one couple who were who were in their 70s and he stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from them, their entire Retirement, you know, other people who are small business owners like myself, other people who are, you know, in middle age. So maybe they have a little bit of time, but not a long runway to try to earn that money back for them to lose this money. I mean, it was devastating on a level that I can't even comprehend because to be at a point in your life where you want to finally get to enjoy the fruits of all this decades of labor and not be able to because you trusted somebody who took advantage of you. I mean, that's a really, really awful, difficult thing. And to me, it's like, obviously, I blame the person who did this, but it really made me feel like, why is this possible? All of us went to this person and invested our money with them because we didn't know how to navigate this very confusing and complex system and because you need gobs and gobs of money to just like live a happy and healthy life. Through my whole experience, I felt like The people who took care of me and watched out and looked out for me were my community. You know, people who I didn't even know who who learned about what happened to me online and reached out or sent me Venmos or, you know, just offered kind words or encouragement or told me about their similar stories like that helped me. What didn't help me was a pamphlet that the FBI sent me in the mail with a page that was like, here are how you, the ways to cope with the crime that's been committed against you. And it's a bullet point list of things like make a to-do list of all the tasks that you have to complete and see what you can cut out or like exercise and eat healthy. And it's like, OK, thank you. Thank you, U.S. government. I am glad that my tax dollars are going to this pamphlet. Like this is not an actual resource. This is like a list of suggestions and no uh, structure to help me do any of that. And then on like one of the pages, it says like, you can reach out to your victim advocate to see if there are any other like programs in your area that might be able to help you. And it's like that puts all of the onus on me as the victim to expend even more time and emotional energy to seek out these services, to hope that something is going to fit what I need, to apply to any of these things, to get to to ready the necessary documentation to, you know, follow up when inevitably there's different, you know, little issues that pop up. And that's a lot. That's a lot to ask of somebody who is experiencing the after effects of something traumatic. And so it's just frustrating to me to be like, this is the system that I was offered. This is what is supposed to take care of me. And what actually took care of me had nothing to do with the government and everything to do with the fact that I'm lucky enough to have good people around me supporting me. And so When the sentencing concluded, you know, the judge sentenced him 
to seven years in prison. And I believe that he will have to serve 85% of that time, which is about almost six years. And, you know, his family was there and his wife was very upset, obviously. And I was thinking a lot about like his children who are completely innocent and how they will now go through some really significant years of their life with their dad in prison. And they can't do anything about that. He did some really awful things and he's going to have no opportunity to be a part of truly being there for the things that are important in his kid's life. And I think about how the ripple effects of that are going to play out far beyond just us as victims and, you know, him and his family. But just like, you know, his kids will grow up, they'll have their own kids and the things that happen to people in their life, you know, it, it, it ripples out for generations. And like the impacts of, of this man's decisions are huge. But like I was saying before, it's not just him, right? It, the system now is sentencing him to seven years. And they're doing that and they're saying, hopefully this can make you whole. And that's the language that they use. It's a lot of language like it's really difficult to make victims whole after something like this. But you know, we're going to try to do what we can. And I'm like, there is no making whole. There's no making whole. Like, that's not even, especially not with the solutions that they're attempting. Like, there's no way that's going to happen. And so now he is sentenced to pay restitution. He's going to have to pay until he pays it all back. But, you know, when you're in prison, you're making such low wages that this restitution is laughable. It's it's honestly laughable. He's going to have to pay, it's like $25 either. I don't know if it's a month or, you know, a session or whatever, but $25 a month, let's say that's what it is, split between 25 people. Okay, I'm going to enjoy my dollar check to repay me for the rest of my life. And then what, but you know, okay, fine. That's when he's in prison. When he's out, maybe he'll make more money and maybe he can pay back more. When he's out, he's going to be required to pay $100 a month. So I did the math on that and I think I'm right. I think it's like 40 something dollars a year that I can expect to get. I can't even move on from the event. Like, I can't even be like, I'm going to put this in my past. and I'm going to move on to the next thing. It's like, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be getting these checks to remind me of this situation, these insulting amounts. And some of these people aren't even going to live long enough to make back even 20% of what they lost. Ultimately, I think it all becomes just this reminder of like, okay, The way this played out was the way it's supposed to play out. It was quick. This person, you know, supposedly took accountability by pleading guilty, by not fighting back, by not running, you know, and by agreeing to his sentence. Not that you have a choice, but like, you know, he's cooperated and now, you know, he's going to prison and that's a success. That's considered a success. And yet all of us are left, all of us who have been victimized and then, you know, his family as well. I'm wondering what what healing have we gotten from this? We haven't gotten our money back. We haven't gotten any, you know, real support. So what did this system do? Like maybe it feels good for somebody in the moment to be like, okay, well, he's going to he's going to have to sit in prison. But like we know that prison isn't a place that people go and they just reflect and it's just a great time. It's like, no, it's who knows how he's going to come out. Most people come out of prison with trauma because prison is a violent place. It's a, it's a hard place to be, especially for seven years of your life. And ultimately, 
that's it. That's the success. And that's the end. And that's how these true crime stories end so often. You know, they did their job. They caught the bad guy. They locked him up. But for the rest of us, our lives are going to continue to go on and we've got nothing. And that is kind of the perspective that I think about for all of these stories that we're telling on truer crime is just how can we go deeper? How in what ways can we honor these stories by like talking about the real ways that these impact people's lives, not just the surface? So I wanted to to share my story with you all so that you could hear a little bit about about what I'm bringing to these stories and how my experience has shaped the way that I see these systems that we talk about every week. So like I said at the start of the episode, next week we'll be back again with, as scheduled, Joanne Little, part two. And that story is so amazing. It's just incredible history. I feel like we should have all learned it in school. It is a real true crime story. And I'm really excited for you all to hear it and engage with it. And you know, if you want to continue to engage with us over at Truer Crime, you can follow us at Truer Crime Pod on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok. We don't have any videos, but maybe one day we will. And we hope to see you over there. See you next week. <laughs>